0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Developments like recent technological breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and the growing and evident impacts of climate change have given rise to a new set of previously unthinkable ideas. That humanity's reign on Earth is coming to an end, and that we should welcome it. On this episode, Commonweal senior editor Matt Budway speaks with poet and critic Adam Kirsch, whose new book, The Revolt Against Humanity, unpacks these intellectual trends and offers reasons to be skeptical of their claims. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi Matt, really good to see you today here on the Commonweal Podcast. We don't get to do this all too often. I'm glad we have this opportunity today. Good to see you, Dominic. How about telling us a little bit about what you and Adam Kirsch speak about?
1: Well, Adam Kirsch is best known as a poet and a literary and cultural critic, but he's written this book called The Revolt Against Humanity, which is different for him. It's it's a report on two phenomena that might seem to many people to be completely unrelated, but he argues and I think convincingly demonstrates that just under the surface, they have surprising things in common. One of these phenomena is a kind of ecological anti-humanism. This is hardcore environmentalists who believe that humanity and its technologies have ruined the earth and that the world would actually be better off without them. The other phenomenon is a kind of hypertech transhumanism involving a cyborg transhumanism, but also all kinds of AI. What they have in common, Kirsch argues, is that in fact they both share an idea that the human race is not necessary, that we can and should imagine the world without ourselves. And so he he delves into the sort of the philosophical background of this and forces us to think about what it is that we value about ourselves, why we have trouble imagining a future without ourselves. So the question is, apart from sheer chauvinistic species loyalty. Is there something about the human race that is necessary for the universe? Or is it at least necessary for us to be able to imagine our own future as part of the future of the universe? Religious people, Christians and others, have one kind of answer for this. But of course, not everybody is religious. And there are a surprising number of people now, for the first time in history, perhaps, who actually believe... That we would do well to dispense with the human race or to replace it with something that bears consciousness and intelligence but isn't susceptible to all the frailties of the flesh.
0: This sounds like a really important talk, and I'm glad you got to speak with Adam. Thanks, Matt. Why don't we take a listen?
1: Adam, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. So maybe we can just start the conversation by addressing this paradox head on. The people that you describe as anti-humanists are technophobes. They think that broadly speaking, they think that human beings have destroyed nature by means of their technologies and that we should welcome the impending extinction of the human race and with it, all of its inventions. On the other side, you have the transhumanists who again, seem to be very different. They are technophiles. In fact, they think that humanity will be ought to be replaced by its own inventions, which will extend what's most valuable about humanity itself. So what is the thing that ties these two together (laughs) underneath that apparent contradiction?
2: Right. Well, I am talking about people who ordinarily wouldn't be in the same room with each other and probably would regard each other as enemies. If you look at like Peter Thiel on one side and Greta Thunberg on the other side, they have very different ideas about the value of technology and about whether we should want more of it or less of it. But I think the key question that all of these thinkers that I'm writing about are asking is, if the future brings us a world in which there's no longer human beings, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Or even more specifically, would a world without human beings still be a meaningful and valuable world? Mm-hmm. And they both agree that it would. In other words, they're saying that the traditional idea that only human beings can create meaning, can create value, that the world exists in a sense... As a stage for us and our projects and goals, that assumption needs to be discarded, and that a future in which there are no human beings would be just as valid and, in some ways, even better than a future than a future in which human beings continue to dominate the planet. And they see this happening in two different ways. Obviously, the people who I'm calling anti-humanists look at climate change and species extinctions and the way that we treat the planet and say we are creating a situation in which we are going to be destroyed, or at least our technological civilizations to be destroyed by our own sort of demands on the planet. And that we need to start thinking about ways to prioritize the perspectives of other beings. And sometimes these aren't even sentient beings, not just animals, but plants or even rocks or streams or oceans or weather systems. And they're thinking about a planet in which the needs of those things came first. How would we think about that? How would we even talk about it? given the fact that our language is, is fundamentally about us, our way of seeing the world. The other side, the transhumanists say, if there was a future in which humanity had been transcended by a kind of mind or a kind of being so superior to us that we couldn't even call it human anymore, would that be a bad thing? Would that be a, a tragedy? Is that something that we need to work to avert? And they say, no, in fact, that might actually be the destiny of humanity is to transcend itself by preparing the conditions for us to be replaced by something better. And they think that the most important role that humanity plays on Earth is that we are the custodians of mind right now. As far as we know, we are the only minds like ours in the universe. And so what our responsibility is, is to make sure that mind continues to improve and continues to grow and spread throughout the universe and that we can't do that with limitations of our physical bodies. So we need to invent a way to eliminate, for example, sickness, to eliminate mortality, maybe even to eliminate embodiment so that we don't have to live inside bodies made of flesh and blood. And they think that if we get to a future in which people like us no longer exist, but as long as there's some kind of mentality, some kind of intelligent life, that would still be a good and meaningful world.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe we could work backwards and, and start there with the transhumanists. And uh, a distinction that arises in your treatment of that movement and its history is between what you could call cyborg transhumanism and what you could call AI transhumanism. One is about remaking humanity itself so that we are no longer subject to The human condition, as we've known it until now, mortality, all the various limitations of our embodiment. So this involves life extension. It involves manipulation of the genome, eugenics more generally. And then on the other side, you have the idea that actually we shouldn't be trying to perfect the human body. We should just understand that what's valuable about humanity is mind, is consciousness, and that's portable. It doesn't need a body to support it. Could you say more about that?
2: Exactly. So the sort of more straightforward Project of transhumanism and probably the earlier one is to say the things that we perceive as limitations and evils in human life are things that we always try to eliminate as much as we can. So we try to eliminate sickness and weakness and injury. We try to extend our powers, even with something as basic as like wearing eyeglasses, which both you and I are doing right now, is technology that allows us to transcend the limits of our bodies. So as technology advances, we have the power to transcend more and more limits, including ones. That had always been seen of as inevitable parts of the human condition. So for example, we take it for granted that human beings were meant to live, you know, a maximum of a you know, hundred years and usually less than that. But if we could create technology that would eliminate the possibility of getting many diseases uh, through genetic engineering, or if we were able to invent nanorobots, which is another technology that transhumanists are very excited about, which would be nanoscale machines that would circulate through our bloodstream and repair cell damage as they detect it so that our cells would essentially not aid. And so that would eliminate a lot of diseases of aging, including cancer. Those things could keep us in a vigorous, healthy state for 200 years or 500 years or 1,000 years. There are people I discuss in the book who believe that's imminent. Some who even say that the first person to live to be 1,000 years old has already been born. So that is one vision of transhumanism. It's to say, we'll take what we are and we'll make it better and better by pushing back the boundaries. Another pathway for this is we have a, an idea of how high human IQ can be. Could we change our brains in such a way that we're able to think much better, much faster? Could we change our senses so that we could hear more frequencies of sound or see more frequencies of light? And by extending the range of our possible experience, make possible all these great new forms of art, great new pleasures that we can't even really imagine you we know, language for language the other vision of transhumanism, which I think is more uh, important now as it seems to be getting more likely, more possible, is the idea that minds don't have to exist in human bodies at all. And in fact, the way that we could overcome our limitations would be not to improve our existing biology, but to create minds that live on silicon rather than on carbon-based life. And there are a couple of different pathways to matching that. One is the idea of mind-uploading. In other words, that you would find a way to transcribe the entire state of a human brain at a given time, which people refer to as the connectome, by analogy with the genome. It would transcribe all the connections and all the neurons in your brain at a given time, which is something on the order of a 100 trillion uh, pieces of information. And if that could be scanned and recorded and uploaded onto a computer environment, then that consciousness could live in a virtual environment indefinitely. It wouldn't be subject to biological limitations. And that kind of brain would be you, or at least a copy of you, uh, living forever in a different kind of world. The second way of going about this, which I think is closer to being achieved and involves fewer leaps into impossible technologies, is artificial intelligence, which is creating a computer program that is a mind in every sense that matters, that has consciousness, plans, goals, expectations, values. We wouldn't have any real intuitive sense of what it would be like to be a mind like that. So it would be creating a new kind of mind that has never existed before. And then the question becomes, what would our relationship be to that kind of mind? Would we be able to control it? Would we have the right to control it? How would we coexist with it? So as you mentioned, uh, a couple of months ago, in fact, right around the time the book was published in January, there started to be all of this news coverage of chat GPT and AI chatbots, which I think no computer scientist claims is conscious, is an actual mind. but it gives often a very eerie impression of being a mind because it uses language so well. So if you're discussing something with chatbot and it's giving you answers that make it sound as though it is a being with a mind and desires and goals, it raises a basically philosophical question, which is how do you know that it's not a mind? How do you know that it's simply a computer program manipulating language in certain ways rather than a being like us that wants to communicate with us? That's always been a sort of basic philosophical question in AI, and it is now no longer just a philosophical question, but it's becoming a practical question. Right. And for some of
1: the more fantastical applications of these ideas, I mean, there's space exploration, for example. A lot of the speculation about space exploration the colonization of mars and beyond has involved ways to make human beings better (laughs) enhanced so that we could survive space exploration but of course the people who are proponents of the ai version of transhumanism would say well you're never really going to get human beings very far in the universe as long as they are animal bodies so, exactly. so if we really want to maximize the potential to rationalize the stars and bring consciousness as far as it might go, we're going to have to, we're going to have to separate mind from body.
2: Exactly. There are some right. uh, actually very serious, real scientists who think that's a good idea, and that's something that we should be working towards. Including one that I discussed in the book is Michio Kaku, who's a theoretical physicist who has written that. If you could capture this connectome and translate it into electromagnetic patterns, then you could send it through the universe at the speed of light and have a real chance of getting some sort of consciousness out into deep space, which we'll never be able to do given the limitations of our own bodies, where we will never be able to survive that kind of journey or time span. One of the things that transhumanists, or at least the more adventurous thinkers among them, think is... If our sort of goal is to know the universe, then the ultimate sort of limit of that would be to transform the entire universe into thinking matter. And there are people who think about what would it mean to organize all the matter in the universe in such a way that it became conscious, that it could think. How many operations per second could such a universal computer perform? That obviously is not anything that's coming down the pike soon, but it's a way of thinking about what humans are for and what mind is for that exposes some of these core assumptions of transhumanism. Yuval Noah Harari, the popular Israeli philosopher of science towards sapiens and homo deus, talks about this as dataism. He says it's like a religion of data where what you worship is increasing the amount of data in the universe, the amount of information in the universe. And the best way to do that would necessarily at some point mean, a, mean going beyond our limits as homo sapiens. We'll have more of Matt's
0: conversation with Adam Kirsch in a moment.
2: I'm Claudia Avila Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal Associate today. Just visit CommonwealMagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation.
1: Maybe we could now turn toward, back toward anti-humanism. And there's also a distinction that arises there, although it's, it's less explicit. And that's between what we could call extinctionists, people who would welcome and might even wish to precipitate the extinction of the human race, the better to preserve nature, people who consider the human race to be fundamentally parasitical and irredeemable. And then there's a kind of luddite version of this, which is not quite as hard, That's, that technological civilization has to die if we're going to save the planet. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all, every human being has to die, although obviously fewer human beings will be supported by a less technical civilization. So is this kind of anti-humanism always, does it always tend towards misanthropy, or is there another way to think about it, is my question.
2: Well, there's definitely a sort of basic misanthropy in the sense that Anti-humanism thinks that more humans doesn't mean better. In fact, less might be the ideal and even none at the ultimate extreme. So there are definitely people, these tend to be philosophers rather than people with power who say things like we should stop reproducing, we should stop having children. Women who get pregnant should have abortions or maybe even people should commit suicide. And that this would be an ethical act because in removing ourselves, we would help everything else on earth we would help the animals and the plants and the climate and everything else. The paradox of anti-humanism is that none of those things can make a judgment like that. None of those things can say it's good to have fewer humans and evil to have more because none of those things have the kind of minds that we do. They can't reason or communicate in that way. So there's something basically oxymoronic about anti-humanism because it is a human judgment that wants to eliminate humans, which are the basis of the judgment. But I think that is a kind of paradox that you can understand and make sense of and even see in other sorts of religious and intellectual traditions because it's about sacrifice. It's saying, if we really take our values and our goals seriously, we should be willing to sacrifice ourselves to them. So if we really want a better world, a more compassionate or more just world, and what that requires is instead of seven billion humans, there are seven million humans, then we should take steps to achieve that. And that would be the ultimate sign that we take our own values seriously, is willing to, being willing to sacrifice ourselves to them. What the anti-humanists don't want is the future that most mainstream environmentalists do want and are working for, which is that we can sustain our current lifestyle indefinitely by using less energy and leaving a lighter footprint. And that's the goal of of all mainstream environmentalism is to say, we'll limit climate change to a certain degree, a certain level of carbon in the atmosphere, a certain number of degrees of warming, and we'll use technology to make things better in the future. Anti-humanists say that, one, we won't be able to do that because historically we haven't, and it's never actually come true that we can deliberately limit ourselves in that way. And two, that to do that would require transforming the world in such a way as to basically eliminate nature completely, that we would have to technologize the whole planet to such a degree that we would never escape the human world. There would be no sort of world outside of the human Mm -hmm. world, and that that would be a dystopia rather than a solution to our problems.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Paul Kingsnorth and an essay he wrote called Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, where he sort of has an epiphany about this stuff. Maybe you could describe that a little bit.
2: Right. Well, Paul Kingsnorth is a very interesting English thinker who he writes about being an environmentalist, starting out as an environmentalist, then realizing that he was no longer an environmentalist because he didn't share these basic assumptions of the movement about how to make things better. And he has a sort of movement, or I guess you could call it movement, called Dark Mountain, in which... He he writes about an experience, for example, of looking off the coast of England and seeing wind farms and realizing that to achieve environmentalist goals, you would have to have wind farms everywhere and that you would basically sever us from any direct, unmediated contact with nature. In, In that essay that you mentioned, he says that he realized in sort of surprise and unpleasant revelation that he agrees with the Unabomber about a lot of things. You remember that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, in the 90s, had a campaign of sending bombs to scientists, basically, because he hated technology and believed that technology was going to doom us and we needed to get rid of it. And at a certain point, he said, if the New York Times publishes my lengthy manifesto, I'll stop sending bombs. And they agreed to publish it and did publish it. And in this essay, Paul Kingsworth reads the manifesto and says, basically, I agree with everything this guy is saying about how terrible technology is. He says, I'm not violent. I don't advocate violence at all. But. It does surface the misanthropy, saying that you're, you don't just want everything to be good for everyone. You actually want to do something to end the way we are now, to end humanity, to reduce our numbers and our reach. And that's a much more radical view than simply being an environmentalist. Right. Really. Well, maybe now it's a good time to turn to the critique
1: of the revolt against humanity what does humanism have to say for itself in defense of this two-pronged onslaught from the anti-humanists and, and transhumanists? You talk about Leon Cass, the well-known bioethicist who leans heavily on the importance of the concept of human dignity and whose critique of transhumanist strategies for human enhancement, most notably cloning, is based in something very visceral. In fact, he just calls it repugnance, and he defends the philosophical value of repugnance. He writes, in some cases, repugnance is the emotional expression of deep wisdom beyond reason's power completely to articulate it. And you consider this, but you conclude that this line of reasoning is deeply unsatisfactory. And you remind the reader of other things that people in the past have found repugnant, including racial mixing and homosexuality. You write, entrenched evils can only be overcome when they are subjected to rational scrutiny. The wisdom of repugnance means that reason falls silent when it most needs to be heard. I think that's well said. But I wonder if I could push you a little bit on this point, because it does seem to be the hinge of your own tentative evaluation of transhumanism at the end of the book. It's Surely not all our moral commitments are conclusions. Some are premises, right? So so rational scrutiny can prune those, but it can't produce them out of nothing. So I'm wondering, can we really even imagine humanistic values that wouldn't, including like a baseline commitment to democracy, human equality, that aren't secured by something other than rationality or scientific procedure?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question, both theoretically and practically as to how these ideas are taking shape. One thing that I don't get into as much in the book, but the transhumanists certainly discuss a lot is what is the way that some of these technologies are likely to be invented and put into practice? It's not going to be publicly. It'll be in the private sector, and it'll most likely be by very rich people who are able to monopolize them or take advantage of them. So if you have a situation in which a very, you know, a billionaire can extend their life to 500 years, but no one else can, the average person can't afford it, that would kind of power imbalance and, and undemocratic situations that we've never even had to contemplate. And that could be, you know, a very unexpected and serious threat to liberal democracy. But I think that on the more theoretical level, the question is, is there something ultimate about, is the existence of homo sapiens, human beings like us, an ultimate value? Or are we valuable because of certain things about us? And if those things could be transferred to another species, or would even thrive better in our absence, would it be worth making that sacrifice? So if what if the premise is human beings are sacred because we're created in the image of God, for example, or human beings are the source of meaning in the world, that we are the pride of all created beings, that we are on the top of the hierarchy of being, and that a world without us would be sort of dead and empty, there would be no meaning to it, no no plans, no goals, no progress. Those are either religious or secular forms of humanism that put us at the center of reality. And I think that practical sense, as I said in the part that I read from the book, in a practical sense, everyone sort of has a deep biological instinct to preserve their own life. And as a species, we have a deep instinct to preserve our species existence. So I don't think that they're all, I don't think it's likely that there would ever be a future in which humanity as a whole decided to commit species suicide because that's not, That's very contrary to our deepest instincts. But in philosophical terms, one of the most surprising things to me that I came to think in the course of writing the book and and reading these people is that although I am a humanities person, I'm a humanist in that sense. I, you know, I write a poet and literary critic, and not a scientist. And I spend all of my time thinking about the past and about you know the human past. I found myself having a hard time justifying the idea that human progress evolution can go only so far and no further. In other words, that we have to say you are able to wear glasses or have a pacemaker, but you're not able to use genetic engineering to make sure that your child doesn't develop Alzheimer's disease, right? That would be a thing that a lot of conservative bioethicists would say is going too far. And in fact, there was a Chinese scientist who did claim to develop, to use CRISPR technology to create two babies that would be immune to the AIDS virus and he was put in jail. So obviously that is not something that the world is ready to do publicly and openly yet. But I don't think that there's a tenable reason, at least not starting from my premises, which are rationalistic premises, to say that humanity as we know it today is sacred and can't be changed. I think if you believe in a materialist account that we evolved to have the form that we do, then there's no reason why that evolution has to stop with the form that we're in now And we actually have to decide what are the things about us that matter? What do we value about ourselves? And what are we willing to do to further those things? And if what we value about ourselves is consciousness and mind, then it actually would be a duty to create forms of consciousness and mind that are more powerful and more durable than we are. So I don't think that, I I sort of understand the wisdom of repugnance argument, but as you mentioned, I don't think that it can really stand up. And I think it's a sign that it's a, a line of reasoning that people are afraid to take to the end because they realize that when they get there, it will lead to conclusions that they're not prepared for. I wonder if it's a,
1: almost a problem of rival humanisms. We speak of humanism. You've already mentioned that there's religious humanism, there's a secular humanism. But even if we just take a secular humanism, there's sort of enlightenment humanism, which, broadly speaking, is about rationality and science. And there's also a kind of renaissance humanism, which has a lot in common with with enlightened humanism. But also, if we take an emblematic figure like Leonardo da Vinci, there's a dual commitment to human reason, to experiment, to discovery, but also to the value of the human body, to the beauty of the the human body, the nobility of the human body. So I wonder if humanism is reducible to That one aspect of human nature, which is the one that transhumanists are obviously trying to isolate and amplify and then transport to some other medium.
2: No, it's definitely true. And um, another person who I write about in the book is a guy named Anders Sandberg, who is a thinker about transhumanism. And he has an essay In which he talks about would people have the right to change their physical form in radical ways? You know, would you have the right if you had if this becomes possible? Would you have the right to grow a third arm or to turn your skin green? And he argues, I think, fairly strongly on the basis of our current ideas of rights, that no one would have the right to prevent me from doing those things. His argument is for the same reason that you would not have the right to insist that a person, for example, who is deaf have surgery to stop to gain their hearing. You would not have the right to force someone to do that because you thought that the best way of living was with hearing. And if they disagreed, they need to be compelled. That shows that we have this idea that we're each sovereign over our own bodies and we have the right to do with them what we want, as long as we don't hurt someone else. So if I think that I want to live in a body with three arms or three legs or horns, no one else has the right to do that just because they don't like that appearance or to them it is not the ideal. I think that it would be hard to counter that with an argument that everyone should strive for a certain human ideal, although I certainly understand the aesthetic and even moral reasoning behind that. You could say, you know, by the the same standard, if we all wanted to look like Greek statues, you would have to control what people eat and how they exercise and all kinds of things that we don't contemplate doing. So the idea of a future in which human beings don't look human anymore is instinctively frightening to us, but it could be a kind of frightening that we can learn to live with, and in the end, in the future, would look back and say, can you believe people used to think that you shouldn't be able to have three arms?
0: Adam Kirsch, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks so much. Adam Kirsch's new book is The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us, available now from Columbia Global Reports, who happen to be our neighbors here in the Morningside Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. Look out for a special package of essays that responds to Kirsch's book in an issue of Commonweal later this fall. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.